By age 24, Laura Fenimore had tried everything to lose weight. She hated her body. When she finally stopped dieting and started loving herself, she lost 100 pounds. Now, more than 27 years later, she's kept the weight off and works with clients to help them to do the same. In today's episode of the Nutrition Heretic Podcast, Laura will reveal her secrets for shedding old beliefs and developing a positive body image. All that and more coming up next. Meet Gina. Gina wanted to lose weight, so she spent two years fasting, detoxing, and dabbling with vegan diets while practicing a shit ton of yoga to lose 25 pounds. But it took so long that nobody noticed. Then, Gina started Frenching her food by eating fatty cheeses, butter, sausages, and red meat, and lost 15 more pounds in only two months. Everybody noticed this time. Frenching your food unlocks the riddle of weight loss that skinny French chicks use to slim down, look young, and live longer despite doing everything wrong. Be like Gina. Start Frenching your food today by visiting nutritionheretic.com forward slash Frenching. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. <laughs> it's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well being. Aloha and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. This is Adrienne Hill, the Nutrition Heretic. And today I would like to tell you to um, stop chasing weight loss. Uh, as you know, I uh, wrote a book called Frenching Your Food. And, and the purpose of that book was to illustrate that French women really do not chase weight loss per se. Uh, yes, they are concerned with the way that they look and, you know, they may curb a few calories here and there, but um, they're not really into starvation. They're not, uh, and, and clearly they're not dealing with uh, the obesity problem that we are here in the United States. Uh, it's no, no uh, secret that, that uh, weight loss is a, a billion dollar industry in the U.S. and uh, it just seems to be growing and growing and growing. You know, how do we stop this? How do we uh, get in touch uh, with where our bodies are supposed to be? And, you know, one of the things that uh, has come out of Frenching Your Food is that a lot of people are finding that once they stop worrying, once they stop uh, restricting real food from their diet in favor of something that's completely fake, uh, that the weight loss comes to them. They don't have to chase it anymore and that they uh, begin to love themselves and they begin to love their food, which is incredibly important. 
And that brings me to today's uh, guest. She's our guest heretic, uh, Laura Fenimore. She's the author of Skinny Fat Perfect, as well as the website SkinnyFatPerfect.com. Welcome to the show, Laura. I am so glad to be here. Thank you so much, Adrian. Oh, well, it's great to have you here because I, I forget exactly how I stumbled across you, but I said, this is, you know, so many people are talking about, uh, let's not worry about the calories, not let's not worry about the fat grams. And then the first thing they do is they tell you to starve yourself on the master cleanse or something for, you know, the first month. <laughs> and then, and then somehow that's not, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a negative impression of food. You know, that's, that's somehow not giving, giving yourself a negative message about food. So what I'd like to do is start out by um, talking about your story, because you've been through the mill with with a lot of things just from looking at your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have been through the mill. And part of why I do what I do is because I got a second chance. So can I share with you a little bit about what that second chance was? Have at it. All right. So when I was 24 years old, I had a big decision to make. And most 24 year olds are figuring out what to do after college and looking for their first job. And I was really debating life and death. And when I was 24, I was suicidal and uh, it was really, really dark time in my life. So I'm going to take you back a little bit. When I was 24, I was 100 pounds heavier than I am right now. I was an alcoholic. I used drugs regularly. I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. And my primary addiction, even though I say food was my primary addiction, really it was self-loathing. I hated myself. And there wasn't anything that anyone can say to me that made me think anything differently. Because no matter what, a therapist or a counselor or anyone said, or people said, you know, you're so pretty if you would just lose weight. Um, It didn't matter. It didn't penetrate the surface. So just taking you back a little bit further in my life, I was born to a father who told me and my seven other siblings every day, you should have never been born. And unfortunately, I took that message and uh, I ran with it. So I believed him. I believed the words that he told me and felt worthless. And, you know, the fact is, is that he had been abused and uh, he abused his children every day in every way, verbally, physically, emotionally, mentally. And there was a lot of trauma and drama in my house always. I mean, trips to the hospital were a regular thing and it was just normal. And in, in the 50s and the 60s, And into the early 70s, child abuse was not talked about. It was still the scarlet letter. And my father, the cops would come to the door when the neighbors would call the cops. And my father would basically threaten them with a bat and they'd leave. Oh, geez. Yeah. So it was a working class neighborhood on Long Island in New York. And, you know, at 11 years old, something very dramatic happened, which finally got social services involved. My father put my sister into a coma and she was in the hospital. And, and so that was our ticket out. That was what got us out of the house. And I went into foster care and spent, you know, the next 
seven years abusing myself in a very severe way because I, you know, I had been stripped from my family and taken away from my siblings. I went into foster care by myself and it was just a really um, difficult situation. And I just used food and alcohol and drugs and self-hatred as my coping mechanism. I mean, there was no other way to deal. So I, you know, just fast forward a bunch of time. I had that at 24, I had had it with everything with, I was out of control in my addictions in every way. And even though I was extremely young, I, uh, was just tired. And so I had this, like, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm going to take my life. I planned it all out, my suicide. And what happened is, is this angel came in my life and there was a lot of people told me that I was worth living, but there was something about the way she penetrated my heart it was very, very strong and very deep. And she's the person that led me to make the decision to keep my life and to go into recovery and get help. And so to this day, Stephanie is my angel. And I thank her for, you know, just just being this mm-hmm. embodied angel who helped me get into recovery. And so when I was given that second chance at 24, I got myself help and I... um I know today that it wasn't by accident and I serve women every day in my life now. And this is what I've been doing for the last 15 years because I healed. I recovered from multiple addictions, eating disorders. I released a hundred pounds. I got clean and sober and I'm about to celebrate in two weeks, 30 years of sobriety and releasing a hundred pounds for life. Wow. So I really, turn things around and I know how to do it. And, um, that's what I teach and that's what I do. Right. Right. So, you know, when you, you talk about teaching people, what you're, you're not really counseling them through kind of the the trauma that you went through. Correct. Is it, is it more just focusing on, in other words, I don't want, I, I, I don't believe that you want people to think you're a therapist. No, I don't want people to think that I'm a therapist, but I am, um, for the last 15 years, I've been certified as a coach Okay, and I'm very skilled at what I do because I, I've lived through this and healed from it. And I understand self-hatred inside and out. Right. So while I'm not a therapist, I've helped lots of women around the world heal from a lot of psychic and spiritual and emotional pain. Right, right. So, you know, they, they, they can work with you on that. But, you know, if they're suicidal, let's say, um, they should also be seeking the help of a, of a therapist. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this work long enough to know what I can handle and what I can't. Right. Right. Yeah. I just I just want to make sure that it's set, you know, that this is set straight for anyone who's listening um, that you uh, you're kind of like not the last stop for them, you know, <laughs> per se, exactly. if, if that's where they are in, in, the, in their, um, in what they're coping with right now or what they're, they're the, the cards they've been dealt. Um, yeah. 
So, um, so t- talk to us a little bit about Skinny Fat Perfect uh, first as a book, and then towards the end we can talk more about your program. Uh, you know what what you do uh, with people, whether it's in a group or one on one setting. So, you know, it's it, now the, the book isn't really a weight loss book, even though that may be the result. How how do you see this book? Well, I say it's a self help memoir because I do teach actual tools in the book on how to begin your journey to self-love. And the thing is, is that in this Western culture, we're obsessed and fixated on looks and being thin and, and body image and body image as much as, you know, diet books are the hot topic. So is body image becoming more and more gratefully so a hot topic. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful because um, people are starting to wake up and see that women of every size, shape and weight are worthy of love and not just skinny women in this culture. And, you know, I talk about weight release only because I was miserable as a fat person. I was not healthy as a fat person. So I choose to be at a healthy weight in my life. And that is what I teach people in sharing, you know, what I did and what worked for me and what works for a lot of my students, getting nutritional help from people like you. But just to be blunt, I'm going to say that I say that it it took a lot of um, emotional and mental energy for me to go from, you know, caring about my heart more than my ass. And really (laughs) that's what my work is about because we are so fixated on the outside that we forget that we can't control the outside until we feel good about ourselves on the inside. And that's where my work comes in. And that's really because I I lost a hundred pounds, but I still thought that I was a big fat pig because I still talk to myself like that. Right. And students of mine will release a bunch of weight, but they'll still feel ugly and not good about themselves. And I mean, usually they'll come to me at that point, like, hey, I've obsessed about my body my whole life. I've been, you know, obsessing and I, it's never good enough. It's never good enough that it's never good enough. Has very little if it has nothing to do with truth, it has to do with this ridiculous belief that we all have that we're never rich enough, thin enough, pretty enough, good enough. And that's just a scarcity mentality that's just runs rampant through our culture. And as long as we all live in that mythology, then we're going to be miserable. Right. It is. Is it just scarcity or is it something else that's going on that gives us the obsession, you know, kind of the, the, uh, concept to, to use a religious reference of of idle hands you know being the devil's workshop kind of thing where it's like oh well, i have nothing better going on in my life <laughs> so i'm gonna complain about this uh where and the reason why i say that is because there is also this concept that when we are in service of others mm-hmm. that we we lose that obsession with ourselves and what's wrong with us 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when, when we when we, you know, whether it's working in a soup kitchen or, you know, de- donating some clothing or, or food or money to someone else. Do you see where I'm going with that? Of course. Of course I do. And it's absolutely true. It's one of the tenets of AA. It's one of the tenets of like you got to give back in order to keep what you have. All of that is true. However, when people are in that state of real disgust and disregard and disrespect for themselves to actually say to somebody, Hey, go help somebody else. They don't know how to do that. I mean, usually that's like a stepping stone that comes. It's not the first stepping stone. (laughs) Like I can't help somebody else right now. I hate myself, you know? So it's a place to go. And to me, it's like a very, really healthy, you know, like major step for people to get to, but first they have to clean up their own act and get Mm -hmm. help and support with themselves. The same way that you, no matter how much people know that carrots and cake are not like the same to get people to go from carrots to cake, celery or, uh, or carrots is like from cake to celery or carrots. There's like usually some, education like that you would give them before they go from one place to another. So it just doesn't happen immediately. And I think to expect that. But what I was going to say is that there's this giant cultural myth and somebody made up in history, culturally, in every culture, what beauty is. Mm -hmm. It's a beauty myth. I mean, it's been written over and over and over again. You know, in the romantic times, that was voluptuous, was considered. And in different cultures, It's like people in the Western world are like, oh, God, I just wish that I was part of that culture because then I'd be okay to be fat. It's like we get to be who we are and hopefully we make choices about how we look based on who we are, not what we care other people think of us. Right. For example, it's like, you know, I always say that if health isn't at the top of your list of values, then I probably can't help you. Yeah. Because it's like that's that's important. That's, and if it's not, that's okay, but it's just important that you know that. Yes, and, and that's that is so important. Um that <laughs> so uh, was always a, a problem when I was working with clients is that so many people would come to me they oh, nutritionist, I have to lose weight. No, no, no. I'm a nutritionist. I'm not here yeah. to um you know, weight loss might be the result. But the, you know, what I want to do is help you with the things that are standing in in between you and weight loss. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, those things, those things that will make you healthier, that will make you sleep better at night, that will, uh, you know, make you have more energy during the day, that will clear up your skin and and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I totally uh, get where you're going with that. So, um, you know, you talk about... When I just looking at the table of contents of your book, you talk about a lot of things that I think people have heard about before, right? And they think they know it all, correct? Mm-hmm. So there's one of them would be shedding old beliefs, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the one of the points that you mention in there is uh, people obsessing about their body betraying them. Mm-hmm. instead of them betraying their body. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, 
when we feel like victims in in the world, and maybe some of them, some of us listening to this have been victimized in many different ways. I mean, I can go back to my own story is that I was a victim of child abuse, rape, incest, all kinds of things that are very, very real for people. But being a victim and staying a victim are two different things. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes when people are victimized, they need to hate on something and blame something. And an easy thing for women to blame is their body and their health. It's like they're mad and they're upset about what happened, but let me just attack my body. Let me make my body wrong because you know, I couldn't make that wrong or I couldn't help myself there. I couldn't. And we're all trained to hate the body. Like if the body doesn't look like Cheryl Teague's or whatever the model of the day is, I don't think people listening even know Cheryl Teague's. I'm I'm surprised I even know that. Um, Whoever you want to, whoever is today. um, It's like that is it's not okay for me to not look like that. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to attack the body and we attack it and we make it wrong and we hate it because it's not cooperating with us. Right. So it's like, I hate my legs. I hate my thighs. I hate my belly. I hate my arms. I hate it. 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 Not only is it our home, the vehicle that we have to get through in our lifetime, but it's like so incredibly disrespectful Mm -hmm. to poop on the thing that is actually giving you the life that you have. I believe people when they tell me that their life is miserable, I know that they they don't feel good in their bodies or that they don't feel good in themselves. But I also know that crapping all over the body is not going to help perform better in our lives. It's just not. Yeah. Literally and figuratively. Uh, (laughs) But, um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to add to that, which is that I believe that uh, doctors are are uh, uh, I hate to say it, but a huge. Well, maybe I don't hate to say it that much, but they can be a huge part of the problem. And, And the reason why I say that is because they tend not to focus on core principles such as homeostasis and yeah. instead they they send us these messages that your body's constantly trying to betray you so yeah. you go to the doctor and they look at you know your blood pressure and your cholesterol and they're like oh there's something wrong with your body take a pill yeah. because your body is trying to kill you take a pill yeah uh as opposed to huh this seems a little bit out of whack let's find out what's going on underneath that's making this number out of whack yeah. Yeah. So yeah. when we have kind of for a lot of people, their doctor is their last stop, right? This is the this is the person that will never steer you wrong and knows way more about your body than you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now we've put all of this 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 uh, trust in them. Mm-hmm. And they're telling us that our body hates us and, and wants to sabotage us. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. no way out of it unless you take this this medication, get that surgery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yep. really, I think that just compounds the problem. Yeah, uh, I do too. Amen <laughs> to that. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that there aren't people that you know need drugs for oh, yeah. 
actual illnesses that they have, except that there are way more prescriptions that are made every year for people that don't need drugs, mm. that, that heal other ways that are abused in every way. So yeah, um, it's 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 a crime, actually. <laughs> right, right. How many prescriptions are written every year? I mean, if I had a, I could tell, I could write a freaking book about how many doctors have tried to, um, just do like really violent things to my body mm. because they just. And I thought, well, if I didn't have any education and really wasn't conscious and aware of how simple. Uh, the, you know, like what they're saying, I would be maimed by now. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> I could I could do a whole book on it, too, uh, because, yeah, we've we've dealt with, um, you know, and especially being a black woman. Oh, they don't mm-hmm. like me. <laughs> they do not like me when I when I come in and I ask questions that make sense and they don't yeah. have an answer for it. I had when mm-hmm. my daughter was born, they, um, they basically did everything they could to get her into the NICU. And then when I inquired about prognosis and what's exactly happening and what, what should I expect and all those kind of things, the doctor got up and walked away. She didn't even answer me. She was mm-hmm. so angry that, mm-hmm. you know, how do you know, everybody else just leaves their kid and they go home and, you know, their baby's just sitting in the NICU, um, I wanted to, to know more. I wanted mm-hmm. to understand what they were planning on doing to her. And she did not like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry that happened to you, but no, I'm glad. But, you know, and, and, you know, usually I don't even go to like the race place. Uh, but knowing people who had been in that hospital um, yeah. of, of other, of other persuasions, they told me what the, what the staff would say about the the darker skin patients. Yep. And so, so I, yeah, so I, I think, so that's, that's the only reason that I even bring that part up. And, you know, we're, we're intuitive beings and it didn't even matter if anyone said anything about the race, you knew intuitively that you were more powerful and you were just being who you were and that, you know, she was judging you and it's just like, Hey, you know what? I'm not going to put up with this crap. Yeah. And, and what was interesting was that when she went off duty that night and the next morning, there was a male doctor who came in, also Caucasian. And I asked him the same question and he said, you look responsible. I'm going to send the baby home with you today. <laughs> so, so that that just goes to to, you know, show how um, how different, uh, you know, it's almost like good cop, bad cop. Right. How different. Yeah. Um, these two people, their perceptions were mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in that moment. So in any case, uh, let's uh, get back to your book. Uh, you also talk about responsibility um, and, you know, the responsibility um, for your body image, you know, what you conceive to be your body. Yeah. So I used to have um, a poster when I was in a foster care on the wall in my in my foster care house that said, bless the beast and children. They have no voice. They have no choice. When, when we're children, we're helpless. We're de- respond. We're, we're dependent on adults to take care of us and to manage us as adults. We're supposed to be responsible for ourselves. And it's, 
not easy for people to be responsible when they're in a tremendous amount of pain. But we are at choice about everything that we do as adults, not as children, but as adults. Mm -hmm. It's very, very simple. But oftentimes when we're victims and when we're in a lot of psychic pain and psychic wounding, we wanna just blame people, places and things and certainly our bodies so it's hard to take responsibility and make choices when everybody's wrong and you're right or people don't understand or whatever it is that's going on. So what I ask people to do that the first step, the first lesson, the first thing that I talk about in my book is about taking responsibility for where you are now, right now, not what happened, not where you want to go. But, you know, I mean, the the gurus have made it, Eckhart Tolle made it very famous when he talked about living in the moment, which, Mm. of course, is like the most basic spiritual concept, living in the now. But it's very challenging for people to live in the now because we want to live in the past and the future and what's happened and what is going to happen or what we want to create. So we can have memories from the past and we can have an amazing future, but we got to start with now. So I take responsibility now for what happened leading up to this point. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that sounds very simple to say, but to actually live it is, is, is kind of radical for people to do. Because when they think about their past, it's, all, it's like there's a lot of blame that goes, you know, blaming my ex-husband or my, my friends or my family or whatever got me or my mother-in-law, you know, it, it enforces me eating like this or I only eat like this because I'm – and there's a lot of lack of responsibility. It's like I don't care who wants me to eat what. I take responsibility for my health and who I am at this point in my life. And that's where my choices come from. Not from what other people tell me, tell me to do. I follow my guidance and I make responsible choices. Right. Now, do you think that for a lot of people, and that's the thing is your, your uh, story uh, for lack of a better description is, ex- is extreme, uh, you know, for most people are, are not dealing with the type of abuse that you dealt with. Um, you're able to take responsibility nonetheless. So yes, to see I someone, have, you see where I'm going? So, you know, so oh, someone yeah, who hasn't, who, you know, like, like I, people you know, my, my childhood was like pretty much like leave it to beaver. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just like kind of normal, you know, everyday uh, thing. But, you know, just still, you know, I, I guess where I'm going with this is that I was not necessarily equipped with that. You know, my parents, I'm not blaming them. This is just, you know, this is just like your dad was a, a product of what he grew up with and couldn't come to terms with that. And, you know, my parents were a product of their upbringing in Jamaica. Uh, which was not focusing on this kind of personal responsibility and, and these these concepts that we're talking about. Yeah, I get it. I hear it. So, you know, what can we do? And this is looking, I'm, I'm now I'm looking at the future generation. What can we do? Because I, I struggle with this with my kids. Eh, Daisy looked at me. So I'm going to drop my food on the floor or whatever, <laughs> you know, um, what what can we do for future generations to 
to get them to understand how to take responsibility and, and, and to start training our kids to, to learn how to take responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, first of all, I always say I'm not for everybody and not everybody. I, I can't help, you know, the world. I can help one person that's looking at a time. Mm-hmm. But I know that my story is extreme and I know that not everybody had a difficult childhood. However, I also know that a tremendous amount of human beings struggle with what they see when they look in the mirror and what they eat. Because especially in the Western world, we would not have, I mean, in the United States in particular, we would not have an obesity epidemic if people were grooving on what they were eating. It's mm-hmm. it's a big problem out there. So I think that there is a lot more blame that's happening on than there is responsibility and taking real responsibility for our health and for our lives. And you know what? It's not for everyone, Adrian. You know, some people are like, hey, I'm fat and I'm happy and I am like so grateful. I am the happiest person in the world. I am so happy for those people. I'm like, right on, man. I'm really concerned about people that struggle and suffer and obsess and are fixated every day. And like in your case, you like help people so amazingly that are like, hey, wait a minute. There's like a million different messages out there about what to eat. And you're like, okay, here's here's what good food is. Here's here's what to eat, and here's the science behind it, which is brilliant. So, I am only concerned about people that just really suffer and struggle with it. Mm-hmm. Um, happy people don't come to me. I haven't, you know, yeah, they just don't, which is good. They're happier. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, in terms of how to learn how to take responsibility, I, I think that it's something that is just taught through, I can't, I can tell somebody how to do it, but until I'm living it, it doesn't matter. So I have to live what I'm teaching. And that's what I do is I do live what I teach. And that means that I take responsibility. And like, you know, let me just give you an example of a student of mine who, while we were working together, got fourth stage cancer. Mm -hmm. And, um, while she understands where it's from, where it came from, but it doesn't matter. What matters is, is living and dealing with it in the present moment and how she's dealing with it is extremely responsible, extremely conscious. And she's not, you know, blaming her parents and her ex-boyfriend and her ex-husband and all the people that, you know, could have uh, contributed to, you know, people bl- want to blame their genes or they want to blame this or they want to blame that. It's like, this is what happened. I am now going to take this information and be responsible with it and take action mm-hmm. in order to, for me to, to heal. Right. Now, do, do you find that in some cases people, you know, again, focusing on responsibility, but the blame talk, uh, the the rut, let's say, that they find themselves in becomes too much of their identity. Like yes. You know, and that this is basically asking them, and even in terms of the weight, you know, uh, it's asking them to lose their, themselves. And, and to some extent, yes, that is what we want, right? We kind of want them to get lost in, in these concepts, right? To, to let go of some of these things, but that it 
for many people, maybe it hits a, further down to the core mm-hmm. where they feel that they're, they're losing their why. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is there a way to dig yourself out of that hole once you, you really, you, you identify so clearly with that, you know, and this is, you know, because I mean, I have friends who've been trying to, you know, quote unquote, lose weight for 30 years. Mm-hmm. My mom yeah. spent my entire life until until maybe about a decade before she died trying to, you know, that was her identity. Somebody who was always on a diet. Well, you just nailed a huge part of my work, which is that it it's about changing your story and it is changing your identity. And that's not to say that you become a different person. It's just that we become so unbelievably attached to our habits and to who we are that we believe that's who we are, Mm -hmm. that we are fixated on. I am always going to be an obese fat person and the beliefs, you know, before we, we, we started um, the podcast, we were actually talking and, you know, a lot of people talk about beliefs and it's something that's like, yeah, I know I have positive beliefs and I do affirmations and I believe this and I believe that getting to the roots of beliefs is a process Mm -hmm. and a practice. It's not something that happens overnight. I can't read, you know, 20 affirmations for 30 days and expect for my beliefs over five decades of my life to change. It just doesn't (laughs) work that way. If I believe on a very, very deep gut level that I will always be this way, then I'm always going to be this way. So, you know, humans are complicated. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, taking responsibility is the first step because we have to begin by actually acknowledging, acknowledge that we do have very strong rooted beliefs and we also have strong, a, a lot of times people blame their body and blame other people. So to actually take our power back and say, you know, I'm responsible, I'm responsible for my health and my well-being from this moment forward. And yeah, maybe I've spent the last 30 years not being so kind to myself or I've hung out with people that haven't been so kind to me. But from this moment on, I want to change my story. Right. Right. So talk to us about what productive discomfort is. (laughs) So the fact is, is that um, we as humans, I think, have to get really, really comfortable with being uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because I have a great life today. And I'm still uncomfortable a lot of the time, but that doesn't mean that I, I just know how to deal with it. And I say to my students from the very beginning, you know what, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because there's no like magic nirvana, unless you become an enlightened master, you're going to be in a body with an ego. You're going to hit up against people. You are going to be uncomfortable. And that means that you have to learn how to be with discomfort without using and abusing food, alcohol, drugs, whatever the heck your drug of choice is. Mm -hmm. And you know, in your case, it's probably chocolate cake for people that are coming to you. They're like, Hey, I've been eating chocolate cake for 50 years. And now I want to start eating carrots or maybe 20 years or however long they've been eating. (laughs) Because it's a, it's a, 
it's a go-to place. It's totally culturally acceptable. People have to eat every day, which leads me to that like frustrating thing is people come to me all the time and just are so mad. Like I was, I was, I met with a woman last week and I love her dearly. And she just gave me the thing, which was, you know, Laura, I'm just off. I'm so off. You don't have to gamble. You don't have to shop. You don't have to drink. You don't have to do drugs, but you have to eat. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to change the perspective on that. Is that, yeah, you have to eat because your body needs food. Mm -hmm. And to actually say how much you hate food, I just want to bring some awareness to that. Mm -hmm. That right there is like all over your body and food. Right. That there's just this off frustration about, God, I wish I didn't have to eat. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what Frenching Your Food is about. It's about yeah. that relationship. And I, I encourage people have a love relationship with your food. Yeah. You really just fall in love with it. The French, they sit there and they relish their pâtés and their butter and all of these things. Yeah. Um, and it's you can you can see, you know, the thought process that goes on with it. And, and so much, I believe, of when it comes to the food role in American culture in particular, but I think it, pretty much any country that speaks English these days is, you know, we for one thing, we only look at it for caloric content. Right. So, you know, that immediately puts like, you know, half of, <laughs> of the food that we can eat, you know, off the table because we're worried about the fat grams. We're worried about too much this, too much that. Da, da, da. But then all you're left with is synthetic when you get into that place you know there's there are french people right now eating uh, i guess dinner just finished dinner or whatever thinking about what they're going to eat tomorrow mm-hmm. and there are people here in hawaii let's just say right who maybe just had breakfast and they are not even thinking about what they're going to have for lunch yet mm-hmm. so we wait and we delay our focus on food until we the, the only thing that we can find is chocolate cake. That's right. We don't think about it ahead of time and say, hmm, I think I'll, you know, I'll go uh, clean up a couple of carrots and have that for lunch, you know, or with my lunch, you know, I have a salad or what, what have you. So to my mind, the less we think about food, the the, the more we, we kind of, <laughs> we think of, of food as uh, the equivalent of, you know, having sex in an alley with a stranger. Um, yeah. the, the the more we treat it that way, the more negative those interactions are going to be. Yeah. Well, remember what I said about humans are very complex. Like I completely agree with you in everything that you just said from where I am now. Right. But when I was when I was obsessed with food and thinking about it twenty four seven and and like I couldn't wait to get to my next bite and I you know, like people that are very, very addicted to food, they are desperately trying to stop thinking about food because mm-hmm. that's their only source of it's just distracting them from actually dealing with the real issue. It's a great distractor. Mm-hmm. So in my perfect world, I, yeah, I, I, I love to be thinking about food in terms of nutrition and what, 
and I and I do like what am I going to eat this week? I am I'm somebody that spends her Saturdays and Sundays getting ready for the week, but I've trained myself like completely. Um, and I can say that a lot of my students now do that too. They know because I've taught them that you know if really health is the highest value, then you gotta. But that negligence that you're talking about is. Um, it's not where most of my students are. They're mostly obsessed with when am I going to get my next bite mm-hmm. and not and only filling the house with crap. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> that's the life that they've led is right. that, you know, there's been a lot of sugar and dairy and carbs and all kinds of stuff around. And that's what they live on. And, you know, it's like so training people to to not only be nutritionally sound, but also to be thinking about food just in the, like you, in the way you described it in the most delightful way. Like, I want to have a really wonderful meal tomorrow mm-hmm. versus I can't wait to get my next cupcake. Right. <laughs> Very different energy. Very right. different energy. Right, right, right. Where do you think that comes from when, you know, they're like the, the uh, the, oh the, the hankering is always for the cupcake and the Cheetos and well, maybe not Cheetos well, that much anymore, but <laughs> this culture is such a giant paradox. And I, I want to, you know, it's so easy for me to say, oh, God, you know, just blame the culture. But I don't obviously I don't teach that blame is the way through. So but I mean, we live in this crazy paradigm and paradox of we you know, get thin now, every diet known to person, there's a designer diet every, there's a fad diet right now, it's paleo and keto and whatever the diet fad is that's happening for the year. It happens every year. Everybody has the right answers. Everybody knows what's right. Exactly. It's all obsession, craziness. And then we have this insanity with how many more cooking channels are there going to be? How many more cookbooks are going to be out? Every cover of every magazine in this, in this culture is lose weight, even Oprah lose weight and go on this diet and go on this diet. And here's my 5,000 Southern comfort recipes. So it's this big, giant, ridiculous paradox of like, well, which one is it? Do I go to my comfort foods or do I lose weight? And unfortunately, because the culture is goes to food because it's the ultimate comforter. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're we're born. And the first thing that we get, if we're lucky, is we get to be held by a parent. But we get fed to be, you know, to be because we're hungry. But it also becomes our first form of comfort and love is getting fed. Mm-hmm. So it starts early and some of us, you know, get attached to that food being comfort. And right. then yeah, voila. Yeah, the thing is, I, I don't know that the French don't find food comforting. You know what I'm saying? Like there's there's mm-hmm. a difference between the comfort foods of their yeah. culture versus what we think of as comfort foods and and some of our comfort foods, you know, they're pretty, pretty legitimately actually, you know, just food, you know, versus dessert. But somehow we always opt for the dessert, not the food side of it. You see where I'm going? Oh, of course. But when you think about it, when you're a kid and you, when sugar and McDonald's and pizza and all of that becomes your reward, 
you're taught really young that that's your reward. Now you mm-hmm. might be, and there's lots of parents out there that they're exceptions to the rule, yeah. that those aren't the rewards for my kids, but most parents give their kids rewards. I mean, my reward was Carvel and, and pizza and all kinds of stuff for being good. And I, I couldn't wait that was it. And they're, you know, now like kids are obsessed with video games and all kinds of stuff that are other distractors to, for rewards. But for the most part, food is still because people come to me all the time and say, I don't know how to m- not make food a reward for my child because they're so wanting to keep up with the Joneses and their mothers give their. But what do I do? I don't want to be a control freak, but I also don't want yeah. my kid to you know, be only getting rewards as food. And I say, you know, first of all, talk about it, but also, I mean, depending on how old the child is, but you know, there are healthy rewards that can be fun foods. And I think, yeah. 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 You know, for, for us, it's always with the the kids. um, Yeah. We, we never made anything synthetic uh, a reward. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, Hey, you know, if we do this, maybe we can make a peach pie tonight, you know? So mm-hmm. we're still mm-hmm. having pie, but it's like a really good one. And, and my yeah. kids, they, they've tried other things because they see their friends eat it and they say, yeah, you know, it, I thought it would be good, but it really wasn't, or my stomach hurts or, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And they recognize that that's not even food. And uh, I could go into Tide Pods right about now. <laughs> Well, tell children that you interviewed somebody today who said to tell the kids they are so incredibly lucky to have you two as parents. So incredibly lucky. (laughs) I mean, really, Adrian, you should like kiss yourself for I'm that you're conscious and you're aware and that you care about their bodies and nutrition and that you take the time to make a peach pie with them is just beautiful and it's brilliant and it's not the norm, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it was, I think, when we were kids. Um, For sure. You know, a little bit more of that, you know, that uh, snowy day, you know, maybe you'd make some chocolate chip cookies, you know, as opposed to going by the pre-made ones. <laughs> so, yeah. so you at least know what's in there, right? Yep. Because yep. Uh, I always say that, you know, no matter what you eat, just eat the best version of it. Eat the most sinful, yep. delicious. Don't just, you know, don't skimp on the calories so you can have, you know, a whole box of it. Just have one really good homemade chocolate chip cookie <laughs> with, right. with real butter in it and, you know, really dense chocolate. Yeah. I'm. We're going to have to wrap this up soon. And there's so many things that I want to talk to you about. But uh, tell me a little bit about uh, how the cor- a Course in Miracles helped you on your path? Well, that is part of my spiritual path, which I came um, connected to in the late 80s, a long time ago. And uh, it was, I went to a, a, a class and the gentleman leading the class talked about that the course was about learning how to forgive people and knowing about my brutal past and knowing how uh, tortured I had been by my father and knowing that I had a lot to forgive. I was, I felt like I was home. That was a long time ago. It was in the early, uh, late eighties, actually only about 10 years after the course came out, but it gave me a roadmap 
to learning forgiveness on a very deep level and understanding what forgiveness was about. Because as I was telling this woman this morning, actually at the bank, she was going on and on about how much she couldn't stand her daughter-in-law and her son is just, and I said, you know, resentment is drinking the poison and expecting the other person to die. And, you know, the more we hold on to anger from the past and the more we're going to suffer. And I'm not so... I know that people have had difficult times in their lives and if nothing else, I can just say that, you know, forgiveness is, does not mean that we forget and it doesn't mean that we make other people right. It just means that it's freedom for us to have a a healthier, happier life. Mm -hmm. So the course gave me a roadmap and tools to learn how to forgive and how to live in love. And the course isn't something that people do. It's something that people live. I mean, you learn Mm. about it and then you live the principles of the course. And that is what I'm proud to say. I've been a student since the late eighties. So it's something that I continue to practice and I'm, I have a giant um, framed poster in my wall from a course in miracles, a, a, a quote and it says, I'm here only to be truly helpful. I'm here to represent him who sent me. I don't have to worry about what to say or what to do because he who sent me will direct me. I'm content to be wherever he wishes, knowing he goes there with me. I will be healed as I let him teach me to heal. And people get very, very strung out about the male pronouns and A Course in Miracles. <laughs> yeah. And I that that kind of stuff just does not use they use whatever you need to exactly. the message is all about love exactly i i've always uh, thought of him used in that term as more of an it you know a, a universal it's it's our catch-all term not not specifically meaning male mm-hmm. uh, right. and i yeah I, it it does sort of get under my skin when i hear people harp on that as opposed to the actual message mm-hmm. um, so i'm glad that you um kind of underscored that uh, but um yeah it's uh very uh enlightening you know to hear that we can let go of those stories right we can pursue forgiveness without and 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 focus on our happiness versus being right and mm-hmm. i think that's where so many people get caught up. I, I know one person I was working with uh, years ago with EFT, I was doing emotional freedom technique tapping with her and she was going through a tough time and and she just could not get past the the forgiveness statement. Mm-hmm. Why should I have to forgive her? And I said, well, because you want to be happy. You, you know, you're not forgiving her for what she did to you. You're forgiving her for not being enlightened enough to understand how what she did harmed you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a huge difference. And unfortunately she could never get past that statement mm-hmm. or any permutation of forgiveness, not even for herself. It, it seemed, um, she, you know, well, cause why should I have to forgive myself? She's the one who did it to me. <laughs> like, okay. Well, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah, but the per- but the question that I would say to that person is who suffers? Like who yes. really suffers now? Like, oh, you know, yeah. she might be suffering, but that doesn't matter right here right now. You're the person that's suffering. Exactly. And, and I think that the most, you know, 
powerful thing that you brought up and that I think was shared on this call was about the identity of identifying so strongly with being, you know, a weight defective. I can't make peace with food. I can't make peace with my body. That's the story that people live into. Mm -hmm. And they're so incredibly identified with that story that who would they be without that story? And that's why at the under, you know, I believe that underlying everything is fear and people are desperately afraid to be happy. Mm -hmm. And if they're happy, like, what would that even look like? I could never be happy. How could I be happy? And, you know, we're so much more identified with suffering than we are with joy and happiness. And when people are happy, they're kind of freaks. So if I didn't identify with being, you know, a crazy person around my food and with my body and diet obsessed, who would I be? And I think that's the question that people might want to ask themselves, who would I be? And like I say, very simply, you could be happy, but right. you know, being happy is not easy for people. It's true. It's true. And and there is, uh, I don't know if it comes from a, a Puritan or, you know, self-flagellating <laughs> kind of uh, 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 culture. Uh, but yeah, we, we tend to literally beat up on ourselves. Yeah. And that doesn't, you know, you know being seems... happy. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was going to say being happy does not take away sexism, racism, homophobia, <sighs> ageism. It doesn't take any of the absolute just civil rights violation, everything that exists. But but suffering actually doesn't do anything but add to that. You know, mm-hmm. I think that the, the the happier people are individually, the more energy that they have to be out there on the front line. Like you can be pissed off about what's happening and also happy at the same time. Right. One doesn't preclude the other. Yes. Yeah. I think I think that's that's uh, I, I say this a lot uh, on the podcast, which is that we are we become obsessed with either or instead of both and yeah uh and and we don't recognize that two things can can coexist yep uh without belittling or diminishing the importance of either of them so laura tell us um about your program how people can get signed up and where they can find you Yeah, well, I I offer free tools at skinnyfatperfect.com and um, I have some options for self-study courses and then I work with people individually one-on-one and once or twice a year I teach my course uh, called Body Image Mastery as a group class and yeah, people can find all that information at skinnyfatperfect.com and my book, skinnyfatperfect.com, I mean, Skinny Fat Perfect, (laughs) Love Who You See in the Mirror is at Amazon. Fantastic. That is that is uh, wonderful. And you're also on Facebook? I am. Yeah. I, yeah. Think I, I think I'm connected to you on Facebook. All right. And that's at Skinny Fat Perfect, correct? My, um, my, yes, absolutely. And my private Facebook group is Love Who You See in the Mirror. But oh, Skinny Fat Perfect is my, my business page. Great. Thank you so mm-hmm. much for, for being with us, uh, for enlightening us on uh, the importance of maintaining that, that, uh, positive body image and and loving 
yourself because just, I mean, I think we've all heard that you can't love someone else until you love yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and I think that we really need to take that to heart and, you know, find that I once uh, heard Tyra Banks said, what is that one thing? Everybody has one thing that they could totally love about themselves. You know, maybe start there, you know, with her, it's her eyes. She's like, mm-hmm. you know, if I could, you know, hate on my butt, whatever, but I've got eyes that nobody else has. Mm-hmm. You know, those are, those are her thing. Find that one thing, right? I mean, I, would you say that's a good place to start for people to just find one thing they appreciate about themselves? That is exactly what I teach. I say function (laughs) over form. And we start Mm. with appreciating the function of our body. Like what is working? You might not like the form right now. And you might, it might take some time for you to accept a crooked mouth or something. But if you could just appreciate that you actually have a mouth or that you have a nose Mm -hmm. and that there are people in the world that don't. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that. I, I, I always do this. I say I'm going to end the podcast and I start talking about something else. <laughs> but my, my, my mom, when I was a kid, I had really bad eczema. And my mom would always, you know, like didn't matter where we, if we were out in public, whatever, she was always harping about, oh, it's so horrible you have eczema. And I think what it was, was I had seen a woman, we were in a McDonald's of all places, uh, but, you know, McDonald's was actually made out of food back then. Um, but, uh, yeah, we were in a McDonald's and there was a woman who now I recognize uh, probably was a victim of thalidomide uh-huh. and she did not have arms. She had hands coming, yeah. you know, protruding straight from her shoulders. And I said, you know, every time my mom would say that, I'd say, yeah, but I have both my legs. I have both my arms. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd find something just, you know, that, that most of us just take for granted. Yeah. At least I have legs to have eczema. <laughs> right? Right. Right. So, um, you know, sometimes we have to go that far to find the positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it all starts with gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. It all does start with gratitude. And I mean, just appreciating it's a way to begin function over form function over form so if if only we could hear a chorus of that Uh, (laughs) thank you so much laura for your time today and everybody don't forget to check her out skinnyfatperfect.com and the book skinny fat perfect uh love who you see in the mirror is that correct that is right and that that is at amazon.com yeah i'm so grateful to you and your work adrian thank you for being a voice of health and uh, just, I really appreciate what you do a lot. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. It's true. And don't forget, tell your kids, they're so lucky to have you as a mom. (laughs) I'm not only going to say it, I'm going to replay this for them (laughs) so they can hear it. See, it's not just me. There you go. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean. And our operations manager is Michelle Med. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at the new and improved NutritionHeretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at NutritionHeretic.com forward slash podcast. 
Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you.